as we continue what is a summer series that we've entitled, I Have Questions. It was through the month of May that we invited you to go online and submit some questions for consideration that I'm going to address through the months of June and July. We're going to go to the Bible to try to find answers to some of the questions that, that are on your mind. Now, last Sunday, as we began the series, I promoted a website that I want to mention again this morning because I think it's a helpful site, especially if you have questions that affect faith or things that the Bible says. Uh, the website is actually entitled Got Questions, and you can find it at www.gotquestions.org. And they claim to have answered over 570,000 questions. And they've cataloged that so that if you go online and you look for a topic or a question that's really been bothering you, maybe it will start helping you to find an answer from God's word that would be a benefit to you. And so I mentioned that because through the course of the summer, we're going to address as many of the questions as possible that you've submitted, but more than likely, there will be other questions that are still on your mind. So gotquestions.org, a good place to go. This morning, though, I want us to deal with the question that someone submitted that I think is a particularly relevant question, one that a lot of us perhaps can identify with. Let me read the question as we would consider what the Bible would say to us today. As it was worded, the person wrote, how do I deal with crippling guilt over a sin I committed? The person went on to add, in my mind, the sin is unforgivable. I'm struggling with unbearable guilt. I feel so guilty, condemned, that God is incapable of forgiving me. Now, let me say, if you submitted this question, thank you for your honesty and let me also add, I don't think you're the only person that has ever felt this way. Uh, because of the choices we make and the actions we take, oftentimes we find ourselves confronted by a debilitating guilt. We don't see how we can move forward. And so this morning, what I want us to do is to consider what the Bible would say to us in relationship to that question. To start with, though, let me acknowledge that when we talk about guilt, what we're addressing by that question is the feeling that accompanies an action that in some way we've considered to be wrong. Understand, if you go to the dictionary for guilt, there's a definition that's going to emphasize the wrongdoing itself, the guilt, I am guilty doing this, but the definition also highlights the emotion that frequently accompanies the action. And it's the emotion that is the focus of the question. How do I deal with this crippling regret, remorse, even shame that I feel over what I did, or in some cases, what I failed to do? How do I find my way forward? Well, let's First of all, acknowledge that when we talk about guilt from a biblical perspective, there's what should be recognized to be healthy or helpful guilt versus harmful guilt. 
See, for us to say, I don't want to feel guilty, may be taking that further than we want to go. Guilt, biblically speaking, is actually a helpful thing. It's a healthy thing. When we cross a moral line, when we move in a direction that we shouldn't have moved, it's good to feel a sense of remorse over that. It's that sense of, oh, I shouldn't have done that, that potentially moves us in the right direction. On the other side, there are those occasions, as illustrated by the question, where we allow what was healthy guilt to become harmful guilt. Where instead of moving us in the direction that we needed to go, it begins to dominate us to the degree that we allow whatever the action may have been to define us in a destructive way. The Apostle Paul speaks about both of these examples of guilt as he writes to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. Listen to what he writes. He refers to guilt or the feeling as grief. Listen to how he describes this. For godly grief produces, he says, a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas, here's the contrast, worldly grief or guilt, if we were to insert the term, produces death. Now, do you see the spectrum here? You've done something that you should not have done. Godly or healthy guilt or grief will actually move you toward repentance. It's going to cause you to admit, that's not what I should have done. So that now I want to move in a different direction. It's going to move us towards salvation, as Paul describes it, so that we actually find life as a result of the guilt that we feel. Now that's the healthy guilt. The other example he describes as worldly grief is a guilt that we allow then to just overwhelm us. So much so that it drives us toward despair and we find ourselves giving up and the guilt destroys us rather than moving us to life. So as Paul, as he's writing to us, he he would say, now, we need to appreciate guilt is a good thing when it moves us in the right direction. I would say, just as a point of, of explanation, what he would say, it's a good thing when it moves us toward repentance. See, when guilt is present, repentance is required. (laughs) That when suddenly I've said something, done something, acted in a way that I know isn't what should have been, the solution isn't for me to ignore what I've done, but to acknowledge it. Now, the word repentance is a churchy term, and and some look at it negatively. Think of the word repentance as, as change. A change of mind, a change of heart that results in a change of life. And what Paul would say, uh, good, healthy grief or guilt moves us toward that type of change. It moves us toward God so we experience salvation, so that we can experience life. Even as it flows out of guilt, that's good. Repentance, though, is required for that. And I I stress that because if, if... If this morning you're wanting to move beyond whatever it is that's haunting you, it's going to start with you acknowledging that what you did was wrong. It really will require that. There's an old proverb that I think 
drives this home in Proverbs 28, 13, where it says, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes. That's the language of repentance. Whoever confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. The principle being, when I do something that I know is wrong, the natural inclination is to do what? To deny it, to hide it, to try to ignore it. You want to resist that when guilt appears. Instead, what you want to do is, is to acknowledge it, confess it. You, you want the remorse you're feeling, the regret that's present, to move you now in the right direction. Which, of course, in Scripture, the right direction is toward God. Because God desires to help you deal with the guilt that's haunting you, that's bothering you. And so my encouragement to us, if we want to truly move beyond the guilt, let's not try to deny it, that what we did wasn't wrong, or try to justify it. Rather, let's say to God, that was wrong, and I want your help. Now, here's the good news. For a believer in Jesus Christ, there is no sin beyond God's willingness to forgive. Now, can I say that one more time? No matter how guilty you feel right now, you should know the Bible would teach for the believer in Jesus there is no sin beyond God's willingness to forgive. That offers hope, doesn't it? That says to me, regardless of how guilty I feel, that what God wants to do is to forgive me. I realize I've made this statement, how can I make it as dogmatically as I have? Well, let me take you to a few passages of Scripture that might encourage us further. Consider, first of all, the testimony surrounding Jesus in John chapter 1. Now, John is the fourth of the Gospels in the New Testament. And in John 1, in the verse we're about to read, uh, you have the person that baptizes Jesus. He's, he goes by the name of John. And it says that he sees Jesus at a distance and he points to him. And in verse 29, listen to what is said about Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What John the baptizer has done is he's grouped all sin together. From the sins that we would describe as small sins to the sins that we would characterize as the most scandalous of sins, he puts it all together and he says, now, know this about Jesus. He's come as the Lamb of God. Now, that's actually pointing to the death that he would die on the cross for us. But he says, the Lamb of God has come for the purpose of taking away the sin of the world. What's included in that would be the guilt and condemnation that is associated with it. Jesus has come to take it away. Now, let's look at that same verse one more time. I want you to notice something with me. There's no exceptions to that. He doesn't say, behold the Lamb of God who's come to take away most of the sins. He's come to take away the sins that don't qualify as scandalous or shameful 
or horrific. Rather, what John is saying of Jesus is the most marvelous testimony. In his coming, he's able to take away all sin, which, can I add, includes the worst of yours. And so if you're the one who submitted this question and you're saying to yourself, there's just no way that God can forgive me, you need to know Jesus came to deal with that sin specifically, as well as all of the sins of the world. If you believe in Jesus Christ, there is no sin beyond God's ability, willingness to forgive. Now, maybe there's a Bible scholar or two in our midst say, hold on now, preacher. I think there was a, a point where Jesus said that God can't forgive the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever heard that? It's found in Matthew's gospel. Uh, I'm reading from Matthew 12, verse 31. Jesus is the one talking. He says, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Now, notice that, first of all. Jesus is the one talking. He said, now, really, there's no sin or blasphemy that can't be forgiven. But then he adds, but the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So what's up with that? Well, if you go back to Matthew 12, you'll realize what's, what's happening is this. Some religious leaders are opposing Jesus. And Jesus has just healed a man who had been demonically possessed. And you know what these religious leaders claimed? They said that Jesus performed that miracle through the power of the devil. They were attributing Jesus' ministry to the devil. And Jesus calls them on it. See, Jesus says, if you look, you'll see that the Spirit of God is bearing witness in me, and yet you're refusing to see it. You're rejecting what the Spirit of God is actually saying concerning who I am. You're rejecting the witness. And then he warns them, be careful if you keep defying what the Spirit of God is saying concerning me. You're going to blaspheme the Spirit. And there's no forgiveness for you. Well, why can't there be forgiveness? Because, friends, it's the Spirit of God that points the person to believe in Jesus. And if the Spirit stops appealing to the heart, that person will never believe in Jesus. Consequently, they will not be forgiven, not only of the sin of blasphemy against the Spirit, they won't be forgiven of any of their sins. Why? They haven't believed in Jesus. That's the issue. Any person who believes in Jesus will have all their sins forgiven. But if you so defiantly reject the testimony of the Spirit of God that points to Jesus, there is no forgiveness for you because there's no Savior for you. You haven't believed. On a few occasions, I've had a person come up to me all concerned. I think I've committed the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I have to smile. If you have any concern about that, then you haven't. See, a person who has utterly renounced the influence of the Spirit of God in their life doesn't have any concern about that at all. Because, you see, it's the Spirit that appeals to us. And so this morning, you don't need to wonder, have I committed the sin that can't be forgiven? If you believed in Jesus, what did Jesus say? There's no sin that can't be forgiven. No blasphemy where you said something about Jesus that you shouldn't have said maybe in a 
fit of, of the emotional re reaction. I mean, the point is, if you believed in Jesus, you can know this to be true. There's no sin that is beyond God's willingness to forgive. Now, I have to say, again, you do have to believe in Jesus. John pointed to him and said, he, now he's the one who takes away the sin. And so, see, faith in him is necessary. But if you have believed, take heart. Forgiveness is there for you. Now, I said I wanted to give you several passages. Uh, the Apostle John, in his little letter, 1 John, is writing to believers, okay? And so if you would describe yourself as a believer, listen to what John says. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How clear is that? And so if I'm feeling guilty because of my action, again, that's healthy. I need, I, I want these moral guardrails to keep me from going in the direction I shouldn't go. But I don't allow the guilt to define me. I allow the guilt to move me to confess. To say to God, I agree with you about what I did. It was wrong. I turn away from that as I turn to you. And the promise is he will forgive. Isn't that the promise? And not just forgive, he will cleanse. That's the language of he's going to then help you begin to change. So he's not only going to restore fellowship with a God who already loves you, he's going to begin to work in you to move you along. Now, for the skeptic still that's thinking, no, you don't know how bad my sin is, well, listen to what John also goes on to say in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's not trying to give us a license to act as if our actions don't matter. When I sin, I know it dishonors God, it disrupts fellowship. But see, the promise of forgiveness is there for someone who believes in Jesus. But if anyone does sin, listen to what John says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The term advocate is someone who's called along to your side to help. And what's the scope of his forgiveness? He is the propitiation, which is a theological term, I know it sounds churchy. He's the sin sacrifice, sees the lamb. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, dare I ask, those of you that think you've committed the sin that can't be forgiven, you think it's a part of the list of the whole world? The issue is whether or not I've come to faith in Jesus Christ. Have I trusted in him as the one who can forgive and save and restore? If you have, then you can be assured that your sin is forgiven. Are we encouraged by that? Now you say, well, okay, I've done that. I know I've believed in him, but then I sinned against him, and it was bad. I've confessed it, but I still feel guilty. What do I do? Well, let me offer some things to, to the believer that may be helpful in dealing with the guilt that seems to linger. First, what I would recommend is you need to think covering. 
think covering. Now, I use that because in both the Old and the New Testament, there are different ways that forgiveness is described. One of the ways that forgiveness is described is that it covers your sin. It covers your offense so that it's not seen. That's the idea. See, forgiveness means that the act, as bad as it was, now is removed out of sight. So that as God's relating to me, he's not staring at the offense, the sin. It's covered. So he relates to me without that as an obstacle. See, it's covered. See, well, again, you don't know how bad my sin is. In the Old Testament, there's a man by the name of David. He was a king. He was a notable leader in Israel. He was a horrible sinner. He committed adultery. And he allowed that action to lead to even a a greater uh, offense. He plotted the death of the husband of the woman he was involved in. It's horrible. And David tried to do what a lot of people do with sin and guilt. Initially, he tried to ignore it. (laughs) You know? Work around it. I'm going to navigate around my sin. I'm going to pretend I can manage it. You don't manage sin. You repent of it. And eventually David learned that. And he begins to write some psalms that give us a special insight into the struggle that we have with guilt. One of the psalms is Psalm 51. If you feel like your sin is unforgivable, read David's testimony in Psalm 51 and realize how God wants to bring you up to a point of restoration. But another one of the psalms that he wrote, I'm convinced after his greatest of failures, is Psalm 32. And listen to what he says in the opening few verses of that psalm. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin, listen to the language, is covered. See, so often when we've stumbled in a shameful way, it feels like it's always there in front of us, right? Because it's always there in front of us, and we think it's the only thing that God sees, our hearts are defeated. But David says a person is blessed when a sin is forgiven and when his sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. In other words, he's not keeping a ledger of wrongs committed and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That when a person stops pretending that they're without sin. For when I kept silent, verse 3, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. Has anyone been there? See, that's what unhealthy, harmful guilt does. It just robs the person of life. I was there, David says, for day and night. Your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the twistedness, the iniquity of my sin. What's beautiful about this testimony from David is this. God covered his guilt. That's what forgiveness is. That as God now relates to David, he doesn't put 
the wrongful offense in front of David. No, he's covered it so that he can relate to David without that obstacle of fellowship. Well, as a believer in Jesus, when I confess my sin, my sin is covered. Your sin is covered. And you need to stop fixating on it because God's not. Consider it covered. See, that's why I use that language. You just need to think covering so that when you feel the pain of the regret, again, just say to yourself, because of Jesus, I know that's forgiven. It's covered. It's covered. Think covering. Second, think release. Different idea. Again, what's beautiful in the Bible is all the various ways that the forgiveness of God is portrayed. In the New Testament, there's a Greek term that's translated into English forgiveness uh, or, or to forgive. It's the Greek word aphiomi. And what's significant about this term is it's describing how, say, if you want to imagine a an an accountant with a, a ledger who's kept up with every single one of your, your sins, every single one of your transgressions, every single one of your offenses. It's in the book. Well, aphiomi means that the debt is removed and you are free now to live without the obligation of the debt. You've been released. I don't know what your greatest financial debt is right now. Probably it's your mortgage. Say if I came up to you and say, okay, your mortgage is forgiven. You think that will alter how you live your life? See, you've been freed from the influence of that debt, right? And your life's going to be different because it's no longer in play. That's the language of forgiveness in the New Testament. That he looks at our debt and he forgives it, releasing us from the effect of it. Matthew 6, Jesus is teaching the disciples how to pray. He uses this term in describing forgiveness. Listen to how it's worded. Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, the, the word forgive is that descriptive word. Remove us from the obligation of, release us from the debt so that we can live the life that is not dominated by that. See, that's the language of forgiveness. Forgive. He sets you free from the guilt of that. Go back to 1 John 1, 9 that I read earlier. This is the word that John uses when he says, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to me, forgive. He looks at the ledger, he removes it. So you're released from it. In other words, I can live today not feeling as if I'm pulling along with ball and chain the debt of that offense. I'm freed from it. How liberating is that? He forgives me. Removes the debt, the effect of it, so that I can step freely toward the person that, that God wants me to be. You need to think, release. You've been set free from that. Don't pull it along. Step forward. 
forgiven. Now, hear me say this. That doesn't mean all the consequences of your past action disappear. I mean, if, I've, if my sin affected another person, know that there still may be consequences in play based on the action. Do you, you do see that? But in relationship to God, what does he want to do? He doesn't want you to be defined by that failure. He wants you to, to be released, to walk with him now in a fresh way, a new way. So you need to think release. You think covering, it's covered. You think release. Here's one more. Think identity. Specifically think this. Because of your faith in Jesus, I am a child of God. Now why do I emphasize this in the, in the way that I am? Because if you've really stumbled in a shameful way that just haunts you, the tendency is to define yourself by that failure. I mean, when you look at yourself in the mirror, all that you see is your failure. And you've defined yourself by it. That's your identity. What I would say to you, if you want to move beyond that guilt, you need to define yourself as Jesus has made you to be. And he's made you a child of God. One that's loved of God. One that God wants to help move forward. Listen to how John describes this. Again, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, Verses 12 and 13, he says, but to all who did receive him, he's talking about Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but were born of God. Wow. So my identity, stay with me. <laughs> My identity is not, I'm a forgiven sinner, though that's true. You know what my identity is? I'm a child of God. Do you appreciate the difference between those two descriptions? If I move into the day celebrating I'm a child of God, then I'm not going to fixate on the failure. If I move into the day constantly reminding myself I'm just a forgiven sinner, then my mind's going to fixate on the failure. Why not focus on who he's saved you to be? A child of God. Can I add without condemnation? In John 3, later on, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, a religious man, and they're talking about spiritual birth. How does one become the child of God? The familiar verse is verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The guilt of your sin, the judgment associated with your sin is removed because you believe in Jesus. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's with you in mind. Verse 18. Whoever believes in Jesus in him is not condemned. Which means he views you now as a child, his child. And the guilt of your sin has been addressed because Jesus died on the cross for that. He doesn't condemn you. He loves you. He wants to restore and renew and help you move through the failures that have characterized your life. Now, the other side of that, whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You need to think, I am a child of God. You need to think that. Let me close. 
There's a parable um, in Luke's gospel, Luke 15, where Jesus is describing the heart of God toward repentant sinners. There's a series of them, in fact, but the the most well-known is the parable of the loving father, which starts in verse 11 of that chapter. Now, I describe it as the loving father. Often what we do is we focus on the prodigal son. But you see, this parable is about the father and how he relates to repentant sinners. And in the story, there are two brothers, and the younger of the two decides he wants to live his life as if the father doesn't matter. In fact, he says to the father, give me my inheritance early. In other words, he's saying to the father, I wish you were dead. Let me have what's mine. I want to live my life the way I want to live it. And interestingly, the father lets him. He gives him his portion early, and the son leaves the home, travels to the far country, and lives every way he wanted. He totally threw off any of the influences that the father had over his life. And dare I say, he made a mess of things. He squandered everything. He finds himself, as Jesus describes the story, uh, at the lowest of lows for a Jewish young man. He's taking care of pigs. In fact, as he feeds them, he longs to eat the slop that he's putting in front of them. It could not be worse for this young man. But then Jesus says he comes to his senses. He comes to himself. And he remembers, you know, even the servants in my father's house have more to eat than what I'm eating. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get up and I'm going to go home and I'm going to say to my father, honestly, I have sinned and I don't deserve to be your son. Let me just be your servant. And so he gets up and he begins to make his way home. And I'm sure with each step along the way, he's, he's replaying in his mind, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to acknowledge my sin. I'm not going to ignore it. I'm not going to deny it. I'm going to confess it. I'm going to hope that he'll let me be a servant. Now, this is where the story just takes the unexpected turn, especially to those that were listening to Jesus share it for the first time. See, the thinking of the Jewish people in Jesus' day would be that when the father sees the son at the distance, that he would probably pick up a stone to throw at him. Because he had lived a rebellious and scandalous life. But Jesus says instead, he runs to the son, throws his arms around the son. And sure enough, the boy begins to say, now I'm a sinner. (laughs) I've made a mess. And he's trying to get to the point now I'm not worthy to be your servant. But it's as if the father, now that his son is in his presence, immediately just turns and says, get my boy a robe. Get him a ring. Get him some sandals for his feet. Let's slaughter the fatted calf. Let's throw a party because my son who was dead is now alive. Now, what is extraordinary to me in this story, if you go back and look at it, and I suggest that you do, nowhere in the story does the father say to the son, I forgive you. You're not going to find it there. It's presumed, you see. What's beautiful, though, is what the father does say. It's all about identity for the boy. Bring him a robe. Bring him a ring. Put sandals on his feet. This is my child. Alive again. See, that's how God looks at us as we have come to faith in Jesus. Even though we like the younger boy, have made a mess. 
When we come repentant, forgiveness is there. It's presumed. But what's more notable is from the Father's perspective, it's all about identity. Put a ring on that boy, a robe on that boy. See, and what's even further, where did the ring and the robe and the sandals come from? I think it came from the Father. They were his garments. And I think when we come to Jesus in repentance and faith and he forgives us of our sin, he seeks to clothe us in his righteousness, his goodness. You need to think, I am a child of God. Right? Now, here I've laid this out. And you're thinking, okay, wave goodbye to guilt. Think process. I wish it was as simple as just saying, forgive me, I love you, help me. But it's not always that simple. Now, I think the forgiveness is immediate. His desire to restore is immediate. But depending on what you've been involved in, it's, it's crazy. I mean, you'll be involved in a conversation. And in the past, you've accepted the forgiveness and you found the Lord lifting your heart. But here you're in a conversation and it just kind of provokes your thoughts in a way that suddenly you're just reliving the guilt all over again. What are you going to do with that? As you're thinking guilt, you replace that by thinking covering. I know my sin's been covered. Release, I know he wants me to be forward. Identity, I know I'm a child of God. See, you're going to combat the negative, guilty accusation. You're going to combat it in that moment. And you begin to move beyond it. But see, that's a process. You'll be at home watching a television program. Simple, right? And something on the program just kind of throws you right back in reliving the pain and the remorse and the shame of what you were involved in. And it's right there again. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to think guilt? No. You choose to think covering, release, identity. If you as a believer in Jesus will begin to combat the incriminating thoughts. See, it really, in many regards, is going to be a battle of the mind, isn't it? We're going to be accepting what God says is true in his word, or we're going to allow the emotion of regret just dominate us. Don't do that. Allow God to bring you forward. He wants to. He wants you to hear him say, bring out the robe, bring out the ring, bring out the sandals. I want my child to walk as a child, not a condemned sinner. Let me pray for us. Dear God, thank you for the testimony of your word that informs us that through Jesus, your son, there is absolutely no sin beyond your willingness to forgive. Now, that's hard for us to reconcile, given how deeply we feel the regret of our offenses. 
But I'm praying that our faith will move us to accept the promises as true. It will allow your word to govern our thoughts. We will see our sin as covered. We will recognize we've been released, set free, so that we might live as your children in the beauty and the goodness that accompanies that. So, Lord, we ask, help us now to respond in ways that bring about that renewal. Help us to acknowledge our sin, not deny it. Help us to accept your forgiveness. Help us to enter into the Father's embrace. That's what we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.